rather than waiting for discrimination to reveal itself in the experiences of everyday people, we can proactively try to measure it using really rigorous scientific tools. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifonter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequalitox. Evan Rose is a SAE Family Research Fellow at the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. He will join the University of Chicago's Economics Department as a no-buyer family assistant professor in 2022. His work focuses mainly on topics in labor, human capital, discrimination, and crime. In today's episode, he presents to us his very recent work with Patrick Klein and Christopher Walters on systemic discrimination in the U.S. Hi, Evan. Welcome. Thank you for being here with me today. Very happy to be here. It's exciting. So I'm happy we can talk about your work on discrimination. And we know that discrimination in labor markets is a topic that often receives a lot of attention in the news and in the public debate at large. There's also an important literature in economics on this issue. And I wanted to first ask you, what do you think was missing in our understanding of systemic discrimination and what do you think you tried to address in this paper? That's a great place to start. So as you mentioned, this is a huge topic that economists have been studying for decades, partly motivated by trying to understand how much discrimination can explain really large and persistent differences in outcomes across groups that just jump out of the data, especially when you study a place like the US. And there's been many approaches to doing that. Uh, and the approach that we're using is an idea called a correspondence study, where researchers send fictional applications to jobs, but randomly vary a race or gender signal in the application using a distinctive name or some other signal. And then they see whether or not the employer is more or less likely to call back the resume with the black name or the resume with the female name. And this has been one of the primary tools economists have used to study this question. Um, you know, there's a famous paper by Bertrand and Mulnathan in 2004 that kind of really kicked off this agenda. Um, and there's been hundreds of studies since then. And all of them seem to show that on average, for example, applying to a job with a distinctively black name comes um, at a cost. There's a penalty for doing so, suggesting that, you know, discrimination is definitely happening um, in the marketplace. The issue with those studies or the limitation is that what they measure is sort of a market level average for discrimination. Typically, you know, your standard audit study will sample jobs from an online job board, just kind of passively grabbing whatever jobs are posted, and then they construct an estimate of the average discrimination across all jobs. Um, but what we don't know is how that discrimination is actually distributed throughout the economy. So you know, is it the case that all jobs seem to discriminate the same kind of moderate degree? Or is it the case that discrimination is heavily concentrated in a handful of jobs, a handful of regions, a handful of sectors, or even a handful of firms. And firms are incredibly important, first of all, for policy, because if you want to do something about discrimination, you know, firms are the actual legal entities and economic agents that hire workers. So if a firm has a discrimination problem, and we know which firms have discrimination problems, maybe we could address that through policy. And it also has an important connection to theory because it's been recognized, you know, at least since like Becker's work in his 1957 book, that what matters for equilibrium differences in outcomes across groups is not just whether or not some people discriminate in some places in the economy, but actually the full distribution of discrimination across the economy, right? How concentrated is it versus how dispersed it is? 
So what we try to do in this paper is take this correspondence study idea and then basically put it on steroids so we could try to actually go to the second level question and not just measure the average level of discrimination in the economy, but how it's distributed across all those important dimensions like industry, geography, and firm. So now let's jump in the experiment uh, itself. And I wanted to ask you, how did you select both the sort of fake resumes that you are going to send to firms and also the type of firms that you're going to target? Sure. In order to do this, what we had to do was change the sampling frame. So as I mentioned earlier, typically the way you would run an audit study is you would use an online job board and just grab whatever jobs came up. We wanted to actively study the behavior of specific firms. So what we did was we started with the Fortune 500 and we tried to study as many Fortune 500 firms as we could. And the criteria we used were these were firms that had a national footprint, so we could study their behavior across the U.S. and make sure we weren't just, you know, capturing the hiring behavior of whoever's running HR in the particular geography where, they're, where, where they happen to be operating. And these firms had to post enough jobs that we could feasibly send them, you know, over a thousand applications or close to a thousand applications over the course of our experiment. Um, and in the end, we found that about 108 firms on the Fortune 500 had sufficient geographic scope and enough flow of entry-level jobs, which is the type of jobs we were focusing on, for us to include them in our experiment. So that's how we picked the firms. And then to construct resumes, what we did was we wanted to construct resumes that were as realistic as possible. So we built fictional applicants um, drawing on real databases of uh, high schools and colleges, and um, employers who operate in areas around the jobs you were applying to, to build fictional profiles that you know, looked reasonable for somebody who was applying for an entry-level position at one of these firms. Um, the firm spanned many industries, so we had different types of resumes. You know, we had some resumes that were suited for somebody who was applying to a job in retail versus somebody who was applying to a job in manufacturing, but the goal overall was to make them as realistic as we could. Um, and we think we succeeded in that, you know, it's a difficult task to construct thousands of fictional resumes that are all different, but all look good. And are also, you know, have randomized attributes to make sure you don't confound your experiment. But we got a pretty high callback rate over 20%, which is quite a bit higher, actually, than what um, Honest Studies have achieved in the past. And as you mentioned, these studies of sending out fake resumes that we call audit studies are popular in economics. And I wanted to have your impression on what are the pros and cons of using this method to investigate patterns of discrimination and things you have experience in doing it. So this is a popular technique. And the reason it's popular is that it gives you very precise control over what you're measuring. So the challenge in an observational study, suppose you just gave me data on everybody who applied for a job at one of these same firms and whether or not they were hired. We could, of course, ask whether or not you know, people who identify as Black were much less likely to get hired than, uh, than white applicants or men versus women at those firms. And we could do that while adjusting for a host of characteristics about the people we could control for their education and their experience. Um, the challenge is you, it's very hard to make sure that you've controlled for everything. You, know, you don't know whether or not there's some sort of other omitted confound, maybe about the quality of schools that people go to, or specific things about the references they listed, whatever. There's a very long list, which would mean that the estimated effect of the characteristic you're measuring is actually capturing something else. And the beauty of these correspondence designs is that you can control all of that because you create the resumes. So we know that the resumes are identical. There's no difference between groups in the quality or the type of experience or education or anything else that's job relevant 
um, across the profile. So we know that if we see a difference in how the resumes with male versus female names are treated, that's coming from the names and not from uh, some other omitted characteristic. And in a situation where you're trying to study the effect of something like race or gender, which is not something that you could randomly assign an experiment, this correspondence study is as close as you can get to that sort of experimental ideal. So that's the pros. The cons are, of course, that you know, what you can measure is exactly that. You can measure whether or not the firm is less likely to call back the male, distinctively male or distinctively female name. Um, you may be concerned that that doesn't capture all aspects of discrimination, and it definitely doesn't. So we wouldn't, for example, capture discrimination that happens later in our hiring stage, or even when somebody's on the job in terms of promotion and hiring. So we're limited sort of in the scope of discrimination um, we can capture. You also might be worried that um, names signal something else. So the reason why, for example, the employer is not calling back the male or the female name or the distinctively black name is not because of race or gender, but because they're reading some other information into the name. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a longstanding critique of the audit study literature. And we have some tests we can get into later if, if it's interesting about how, uh, what, for why we think that's not a concern in, in this case. But you know, that is, of course, an important limitation of, of using this type of experimental design. So after you sent out these fake resumes, what did you observe? Let me start with gender, and then we can move on to race. So on our, overall, what we find is that the resumes with, with male versus female names are, on average, about as likely to get called back. So there's no average gap. And that's not surprising. It's sort of consistent with what some audit studies have found in the past. But what we were able to do is go further and uncover the fact that that masks a ton of heterogeneity. So despite the fact that there's no average difference, some firms and some industries even seem to prefer to call back the male names and some firms and some industries uh, call back the female names and on an average, those two effects kind of cancel out. So there's a ton of gender discrimination going on, but you completely miss it if you just looked at the average effect. For race, what we find is quite different. What we find is that overall, there's a penalty to applying to a job with a black name of about two percentage points, roughly 10% of the mean callback rate for the applicants with distinctively white names. Um, and you know, that seems to be pretty persistent and stable across the course of our study, but it also varies a ton of cross firms. So some firms seem to discriminate very little on the basis of race, and some firms seem to discriminate quite a, a bit more. Okay, so there's a lot of variation across firms and their preference um, over race. For age, which is something else we studied, we actually don't seem to find that much. There seems to be a small penalty to applying to jobs and listing a year of high school graduation, which suggested you were over 40 at the time you applied, but it's, it's not as dramatic as what we see certainly for race and gender. Um, I think the other really interesting finding, at least to me in the, you know, when I first started analyzing the results is that geography seems almost irrelevant. You know, having spent a lot of time growing up in different places in the U.S., I would have expected, you know, the behavior of firms that were operating in certain parts of the country to be different. But, you know, we can, all, we can barely, um, you know, reject the idea that the discrimination in all 50 states is the same. Um, and that stands in stark contrast, of course, to the firm differences that I talked about earlier, and also industry differences. So industries are incredibly important for both race and gender, and they explain probably about half of the variation in the differences we see across firms. And some industries just really jump off the page. So in gender, you know, we see strong uh, preference for male applicants in like stereotypically heavy industries like wholesale durables and manufacturing. We see a really strong preference for female applicants in the retail and apparel sectors. 
In race, uh, what we see is a lot of discrimination against distinctively black names in um, the auto sector, firms that either sell cars or car parts, uh, in general retail, in dining and food services. We see much less discrimination in some of those same heavy industries like in you know, freight and logistics, as well as manufacturing and healthcare. Um, so that's, I think that that's also another interesting finding. La minute technique. In this podcast, researchers take about one minute to explain one technical aspect of their research. So there's actually a lot of technical points in your paper, but I wanted to ask you specifically if you could give us the intuition behind the statistical test that you use to check whether the contact gap varies across firms and if it's always going in the same direction, in the sense like if uh, firms systematically discriminate against women or men. I think it's easier to take the example of race. We estimated the extent of discrimination at roughly 100 firms. And a question we were asking was, is it the case that all the firms seem to weakly prefer calling back the white applicants, but just some firms seem to do that normal more? So that's, you can think about that question as just asking if we had 100 different estimates of firm discrimination, where the estimate was formed as the white minus black gap, you know, are they all positive? Or are some of them in fact negative, implying a preference for for um, black applicants. Um, and if you have enough data that behind each of those estimates that you can assume that you've managed to reach asymptopia, so your estimates are you know, standard normally distributed, then it's easy to construct a test for whether or not that directional effect exists by taking the smallest of, estimate, of the estimates that you actually have and comparing that to what you would get if you just had 100 standard normal um, random variables all centered at zero. Right? Of course, some of those will be negative and some of those will be positive because they're just random variables all centered at zero. But if your most negative estimate is much more negative than you would expect from that simulation, then you conclude that, okay, at least one of these estimates is definitely negative. So we can't conclude that they're all positive, which of course in our case would mean that there's only discrimination against black applicants. Now, it that's like the simple version. It turns out that that's pretty conservative because what you're doing there is simulating the worst case where all the parameters are in fact are exactly zero. In truth, some of our parameters are definitely very positive. Um, so there's fancier techniques you can use that we do in the paper, which effectively just ignore the estimates that definitely don't violate your hypothesis that are clearly positive. So you can just sort of toss them out. And by doing that, you can actually improve the power when you use this kind of technique. But the intuition is exactly the same. You should think about it as like comparing what you get from a simulation where you know, you're, you're trying to see the smallest possible value you would get from a bunch of random normal variables. So as you mentioned, one key innovation of your study is that you are able to explore variation in the severity of discrimination across many dimensions, so geographic areas over time and across employers. And I wanted to ask you specifically about the types of jobs and whether there's something interesting that emerged in looking at the, the task contents of jobs. Yeah, definitely. So we focused on entry-level jobs, but we had a really diverse set of jobs in our study. I mentioned earlier, you know, some of them are in retail, some of them are in food services, some of them are in hospitality, some of them are in manufacturing, healthcare. So one important question we had was whether or not the task content of jobs related to the level of discrimination we see. 
there's a lot of economic theory that connects to this. You know, some people have argued, for example, that discrimination might be motiv motivated by contact hypotheses, in particular, like whether or not the job interacts with customers or how the job interacts with coworkers. And both of those dimensions could affect, you know, uh, preferences um, for employers to hire particular types of people. And superficially, what we find is that, you know, task content does seem to matter. So it looks like, for example, that jobs that have a more customer-facing element seem to discriminate more. And, you know, there's similar dimensions you can find in gender as well. What surprised us, though, is that that fact, um, though true overall, does not seem to hold up when you look at differences between jobs in the same company. Right. So when you compare jobs to different task content that are part of the same parent firm, the level of discrimination is not so different. So while it's true that job task content predicts discrimination, instead what it seems is that certain types of jobs, like those that involve a lot of customer contact, for example, tend to concentrate in particular firms that discriminate more generally across all the jobs in their firms. Right. So there's sort of mixed evidence for how that how that uh, task how job task content might produce discrimination. And our evidence suggests that while it's important, you know, it might be sort of uh, dominated by firm level variation, firm level policies, uh, which could contribute to the level of discrimination you see. And specifically uh, talking about these firms that discriminate, is there something that you can say about the practices and human resources and, uh, like you said, the internal policies in place that could explain why we observe such huge variations? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we do a lot of work to try to understand what correlates with discrimination at the firm level. Um, you know, so we looked at stuff like firm size and firm profitability and lots of different dimensions of firms. Some things jump out there, jump out there. You know, for example, it looks like more profitable firms discriminate less, um, which is consistent with some theories about, you know, it should be costly to discriminate because you're turning away qualified workers. Uh, we also find that firms that have more contact with the government um, because they've been the subject of past regulatory actions seem to discriminate less. So it's potentially because they're subject to more scrutiny and oversight. Um, but the most interesting thing I think we find is that the structure of a firm's recruiting function seems to be a strong predictor of discrimination. And so firms where the recruiting function is very centralized, meaning we got a lot of callbacks from the firm, but they all came from a small set of phone numbers meaning probably only a handful of people were actually reviewing applications and deciding whom to call back. In those settings, we see much less discrimination than at firms where callbacks are very decentralized, meaning dozens and dozens of people are making these decisions at, a, at an individual level. And we think that's very interesting because it suggests that you know, a specific type of policy, namely the degree of oversight and training and professionalization that you put into your HR function, can help mitigate bias. You can think about it like taking the decision out of the hands of you know, somebody who's running the local establishment is incredibly busy, they've got five other things on their job, they're looking at a stack of resumes, and maybe implicit bias just creeps in very easily if you're just flipping through these at the end of your shift and trying to decide who to call, versus somebody whose job is to focus on recruiting and maybe has colleagues that they consult with to get a second opinion about particular applications. And you know, there's some evidence that slowing down your thinking on these decisions can help mitigate the impacts of, of some of those biases that people face. So you know, that's a little bit of speculation, but the fact is definitely there that the structure of HR matters. And you know, one very important area that we're excited to pursue in future work is to try to understand more specifically what are firms actually doing differently? And could any of that be changed in a positive way?
So you walked us through the patterns of discrimination and how it varies across firms, but you also bring in the paper some statistical tools to make sure that you were able to detect with confidence that certain firms are discriminating and some others are not. Can you tell us more about this? You know, you can think about the first half of our paper is as characterizing where discrimination occurs. You know, we look at the variance and the concentration across firms. We correlate it with firm characteristics. We do all sorts of stuff to just try to understand what predicts it. A second question you might ask would be, what um, can I say about my confidence that any given firm is discriminating? And that's a separate question, which is more related to your ability to detect reliably discrimination within a given, within a given economic unit. Um, so we borrow some techniques from the biostats literature where people have been trying to study, for example, how uh, genes correlate and gene expression correlates with incredibly rare genetic diseases. We borrowed some tools they use there to, that are well suited to testing a really large set of hypotheses, namely whether or not any one of these hundred or so firms that we've, we've been studying are discriminating to try to tackle that question. And surprisingly, what we find is that with the real, relatively small amount of data we have, I mean, it's a lot compared to previous audit studies, but compared to genome-wide association studies, it's minuscule. Um, you can say a lot and we can identify, you know, close to two dozen firms, for example, that we can definitively say are definitely discriminating on the basis of race while controlling the likelihood that we made a mistake, namely that one of those firms is actually not discriminating at all, not using race at all in those decisions, uh, you know, to less than 5%. And that's a technique called, you know, false discovery rate control. It's sort of an alternative to classic hypothesis testing um, that's well suited to this kind of setting where, again, you're testing many, many hypotheses. I and mean, that's important for some of the policy angles we've discussed as well, because it means that, you know, not only is it feasible with these tools to understand where discrimination is occurring, but you can be really precise and pinpoint which specific firms is it happening at without um, risking making a ton of mistakes, having a ton of false positives um, in your policy recommendations. It is clear that this research has immediate policy implications, and the first and obvious reason is that you actually know the names of firms that discriminate. Uh, but more broadly, I wanted to ask you to tell us why you think it matters to quantify these variations in discrimination across employers, especially if we want to learn more about the prevalence of inequality at, at a country level. I think that there's a ton of reasons you should be interested in this, um, and I'm interested in it. Uh, I think the most direct policy reason is that, you know, we feel fairly confident that this type of study could be used to enforce discrimination law. Um, rooting out discrimination is difficult, uh, especially in a world where um, what you think is going on is that, you know, there's a couple biased hiring managers who are kind of scattered throughout the economy. What that, you know, rooting out that kind of discrimination would require would be waiting for private litigants to, you know, counter discrimination in the workplace, make a complaint, bring a lawsuit, and you could imagine that happening over time, bubbling up through the economy and having a real impact. What we're suggesting is that maybe like a sort of top-down approach could also be effective. Rather than waiting for discrimination to reveal itself in the experiences of everyday people, we can proactively try to measure it using really rigorous scientific tools. And we can measure it in a way where we can capture broad systemic patterns, right, that are pervasive across an entire firm structure. And that's optimistic because it's more proactive. And it also suggests that you can do something about it at the firm level to tackle that, that level of systemic component. 
Um, and you know, this is a debate that's going on in the legal literature and in the enforcement literature. When you think about the people uh, who actually enforce anti-discrimination laws in the US, the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, how much should they be focused on that top-down versus bottom-up approach? And we're excited about this work because we think it offers a pretty clear tool that you could use to make that top-down approach potentially more effective. So that's like the policy argument for why I think this is really important. Um, of course, there's, you shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing this at the exclusion of many other ways to study and quantify discrimination. Um, you know, I think developing methods that are similar but allow you to capture different types of discrimination, including sort of disparate impacts, arguments, as well as discrimination in other parts of the employment process are super important. And maybe the type, same types of approaches we're doing here could you know, find analogs in, in those settings as well. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask if you have a recommendation for our listeners about a book, a movie, or anything you would like to share with us. Well, so one book that's really shaped my thinking on particularly racial inequality and racial discrimination is Glenn Lowry's book, uh, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, published in 2002. Um, it flies under the radar a little bit, but I think Glenn is just an incredibly clear and compelling writer. And I think anybody who's interested in these topics will find his analysis of what are admittedly very heady and philosophical issues sometimes about the nature of race and the nature of discrimination, nature of inequality, very clear and very understandable and very compelling. And it certainly changed the way that I, and I think other people in the profession think about discrimination in equilibrium. So I would recommend that book for sure to anybody who's interested in these topics. Thanks a lot, Ivan. Thank you very much for this conversation. No worries. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clémentine Van Infantère in Toronto. I want to thank Clémentine Benoit for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.